Coming up on Tech Nation, Wall Street Journal investigative journalist Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer. Their book is Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea. Then neuroscience tells us it's all about the messenger and not the message. Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks join me to talk about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. The successful messenger is changing. Perhaps next time you'll listen more carefully and trust differently. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with Daniel Pink about his book, To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. You know, in Silicon Valley, we often say everyone's an entrepreneur. But for Daniel Pink, just about everybody everywhere is a salesman. It's true. I do say that. And if it's, it's true in the data. Right now in the U.S., you have one in nine people in the workforce are in sales. Their job is to get people to buy stuff. It's people in Silicon Valley who are selling computer systems, uh, people in Silicon Valley who are selling real estate or automobiles. And yet, if you look at what those other eight and nine do, they're in sales too. For this book, To Sell as Human, I went out and did some survey research, asked 7,000 adult full-time workers a bunch of questions, including this one. How, what percentage of your time do you spend persuading, influencing, convincing other people to give up something they have in exchange for what you have? And that what they have could be denominated in dollars, but it could also be time, attention, effort. And on average, people told us they're spending 40% of their time on the job doing this kind of thing. That's kind of sort of like sales, what I call non-sales selling. So you know, if you if one ninth are doing something and the other eight ninths are doing something, you add them up. That's nine ninths, or like it or not, we're all in sales now. Just about everybody. <laughs> yeah, like it or not. I mean, that's basically I think the nature of what we do for a whole host of of economic reasons. Well, in the social media digital space, certainly there's the aspect of selling. I mean, Facebook, it's an image. Twitter, it's a short message. Match dot com, a person you want to have a relationship with. Even Craigslist, you want to just even give something away. You get better make it appealing, or they're not going to come. And take it. Uh, it's, uh, that's exactly right. I mean, those kinds of technologies are part of why, at some at some level, we are all, all in sales now. And those are, and most of those aren't even in our work lives. Match.com profile is essentially a pitch. It is a it is a pitch to prospective romantic partners. Twitter is essentially an invitation to pay attention and, and to engage. Facebook too, and Craigslist. I mean, literally, in some cases, is selling even if the sale is has no dollars, no money's changing hands. Now, lots of people are saying right now, look, I'm just not a salesperson. For yeah. one thing, I'm kind of shy or I'm private or the last thing anyone would expect me to do well is sell. Mm. But you're seeing it kind of differently, right? I'm seeing it very differently, as, as a matter of fact. And that's actually the heart of what I've I found out. So there are a couple of interesting dimensions of this. Uh, one of the questions that I asked these 7,000 adult full-time workers is, when you think of sales or selling, what's the first word that comes to mind? What's the first word that comes to mind? And when you track through these responses, after having eliminated the nouns, I focused on the adjectives because they give you some emotional content. And out of the top 25 adjectives that people gave in response to that question, 20 were negative, 5 were positive, 20 were negative, and they were words like pushy, sleazy, 
slimy, High smarmy, pressure. cheesy, <laughs> annoying, not very positive words. And so to say we're all in sales now, people say, oh, you know, they say they, they, literally, they literally gave the answer ick as the first word that came to mind. Yuck as the first word that came to mind. And so we do have this feeling about that, that sales is ick, yuck, and uck, slimy, sleazy, and smarmy. I think that's wrong, though. Now, we always think of these sort of pushy, extroverted people. Yeah. But you say, hey, hey, the, the best are actually in the middle. An ambivert? Abs- I've never heard this Oh, before. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one reason why I think the, the, the idea that, we're, that, that sales is not as sleazy and slimy as, as it was before is because that was a world of information asymmetry. When the seller always has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. And so that's why we have the whole principle of buyer beware. If I know a lot more than you and you have no way to talk back and you have no and few choices, I can go down the low road. I can hoodwink you. Um, and that's why we think of sales as inherently kind of suspect. But now that information asymmetry that defined the relationship has changed. It's information parity. And so that's moving us to the high road. Information parity? Oh, yeah. Just pick up your smartphone during the sales pitch. You've been listening to a 2013 Tech Nation interview with Daniel Pink about his book, To Sell is Human. A prolific author, Daniel's latest book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Wall Street Journal investigative journalists Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer. Their book is Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea. Then neuroscience weighs in. Is the message you're hearing what's important, or is it the messenger? Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks join me to talk about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer. Well, Kirsten and Catherine, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Well, early on in the dot-com boom, 1999 to be exact, Zappos.com came out. And uh, Zappos, if you don't know, is Z-A-P-P-O-S. And I would venture to say that more women than men were familiar with this website. You see, at the time... They exclusively sold shoes, no more, but that's what they did then. So Tony uh, was an early successful entrepreneur. He had started a company called Link Exchange uh, that he sold to Microsoft for $265 million. So he's in his 20s. He's got a, a, a lot of money and he decides with his friend Alfred Lin to, to do a venture uh, startup fund called Venture Frogs. And one day he gets a pitch from a man named Nick Swinburne. He says, hey, I've got this idea. I want to sell shoes online. 
And even Tony, as big a thinker as he was, that was just such a, an odd idea back then that he was skeptical as well. But eventually Nick convinced him, uh, Venture Frogs invested, and Tony even became CEO and, you know, led the company. Well, I have to say at the time, everybody thought it was the dumbest idea. Shoe.com or shoes.com was like no traction there. And I even remember a very well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley turning to me in those early days and said, who would buy shoes on the internet? You got you know, I wish he, he wish he did. He wish he did now. So, um, so it, it got started. It, it did well. In fact, 10 years in, Amazon comes along and buys uh, Zappos for over a billion dollars. And instead of the CEO spending, say, a year and going away, Tony Shea continues on for another 10 years, which brings us, you know, 20 years in. Here is Tony Shea. What happened in that full span? Wow, a, a lot happened. You know, leading up to that sale to Amazon, Tony had created this brand around happiness. He instilled a culture of happiness and joy into the office, whether that was through these core values for workers and just as important, instilling happiness in his customers. So what did that look like? Well, eventually he did, you know, free returns, right? So going back to the idea that the shoe business is a tough business online, customers could return their shoes uh, for free for an entire year. So he really just became famous for this whole notion of happiness, both in the workplace and outside the workplace. He published this best-selling book, Delivering Happiness, all about his career trajectory and what was going on at Zappos. And all of a sudden, you know, thousands of people a year were coming to tour Zappos and learn from him about how to create this happy workplace. And then he decides to invest $350 million of his own money into downtown Las Vegas, the sort of, you know, dusty, forgotten corner of the city. And that's also revolved around happiness. You know, it's a bunch of like fun art and projects and redevelopment all designed to draw people in and bring all these entrepreneurs with cool new ideas. And so he had really become um, one of America's most beloved entrepreneurs. What I found so strange about the time in a sense was and him over this time is that Boy, we get a lot of books written by CEOs who are successful and, and like, here's how I did it. This is in the, a slice of the book industry. That's very small. This book, Delivering Happiness, was a bestseller on the New York Times list. It went, people kept buying it, all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. There was this happiness phenomenon around him. He really hit this chord about happiness in our culture, and it kind of came at a time where other tech companies were considering perks for employees and wanting, thinking more about how they could make their workforce happy and have that translate into profits, right? So he just really struck this chord. Now, we'll go about 20 years in here. So this brings us to, say, spring of 2020 fall of 2019 in there. And uh, if anything, Tony was having a hard time delivering happiness to himself. That's right. I mean, this 
this sort of enters a really sad part of his story, which is by this point, he's kind of almost not a real person. He's a superstar, a business superstar. And privately for years, he's been struggling with these mental health issues, social anxiety. Um, he has some face blindness, which makes it hard to recognize people. He has long used alcohol as a coping mechanism, and he's normalized that. So the people around him sort of think it's normal for him to be drinking these copious amounts. Um, but now, as we head into 2020 and the pandemic, the alcohol isn't working as well. So he turns to another drug, ketamine, um, which is typically used in medical procedures and it sort of gives you a high, but he begins abusing it in a way that really starts to worry his friends. Well, when you think about face blindness, and if you could talk just a little about that, and if somebody's been drinking a lot, of course they're not going to remember you. <laughs> if they're taking drugs, of course they're not going to remember you. It's hard to overstate how private a person Tony was. So this face blindness issue, it's its still hard for us to tell, even all this time researching him and talking to his close friends, how severe it was for him. But when it's severe, I mean, you can have trouble recognizing your own mother, right? And this is this is a person that is constantly around groups of people, has in fact built his life around groups of people. He lives in a small Airstream trailer in this communal way. And so any form of, of face blindness where you're having trouble recognizing someone would have been debilitating for him. And now let's take a drug break. <laughs> Not that we are going to personally take drug breaks, but tell us about, you know, these drugs. I have to tell you that in Silicon Valley, we've had a drug problem, not like what many would imagine, but microdosing, little this, little that to sharpen you, you'll get more creative. And of course, microdosing often leads to or can lead to maxodosing. And that's been a real problem here in Silicon Valley, not to get high, but to get more creative and innovative and sharper and all of that. So tell us, how does this ketamine work? What does it lead to? How do, how do you use it? Well, Catherine has become quite the drug expert <laughs> in the researching of this book. Well, ketamine is a disassociative drug. So it will, you know, at high doses, separate you from reality, essentially. It's a very numbing agent. So you could see why that would also be seen as a coping mechanism but actually, you know, Tony's drug of choice in the last year of his life was nitrous oxide, which is a gas that you huff that gives you a euphoric uh, experience, very short lived, you know, we're talking seconds. And he began consuming that in, in huge quantities. Uh, you know, people who were living around him saw, you know, his home littered with these empty canisters. So it really became an addiction. Now, is nitrous oxide, is that a prescription drug? I mean, would you have to have someone prescribe you these canisters? No, it is an over-the-counter substance. It's not regulated as a controlled substance. So if you think about the little metal canisters, you might see that chefs use, that they put into a whipped cream dispenser. Um, that's how it's most frequently used. And recreationally, people huff it um, from those canisters and they call it whippets. I mean, it's a common drug around Burning Man and Tony was a huge Burning Man fan. Um, and it's 
largely been seen as just kind of a silly, fun party drug. But my research into the history of it shows it has a long use for trying to attain you know, spiritual awakenings. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Wall Street Journal investigative journalist Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer. Kirsten Grind covers enterprise and finance out of the San Francisco Bureau, while Catherine Sayer covers gambling in Las Vegas out of the Los Angeles Bureau. Today, they've written Happy at Any Cost, the revolutionary vision and fatal question of Zappos CEO, Tony Shea. Well, everyone is inside. We're all on lockdown. Now, here we are, early days of the pandemic. Here's a person who needs a lot of support from people like the entourage, even if he can't quite recognize their faces from time to time. Where did we go from here? What happens in that winter of 2019, 2020? Yeah, so the pandemic was just such a game changer for Tony, unfortunately. So just before um, March 2020 rolled around, and it's hard to believe this is now two years later, Tony's friends had successfully convinced him to go to rehab near Park City. Now, he negotiated only staying two weeks, and he left less than two weeks later. But he did go because of his ketamine abuse. And he was out for only a couple weeks when the world just completely shut down. And you can't say enough about how debilitating that would have been for Tony and someone like him, someone who is constantly surrounded by people, derives joy, has based his whole existence really on being constantly among groups of people. And so Obviously, the pandemic shut all of that down, and Tony was very isolated in Park City. He began calling. You know, he had hundreds of friends and acquaintances all over the world. He began just calling people to try and come join him in Park City. And because he is there, he's going to do something like he does in uh, Las Vegas, only different. Exactly. He had this uh, vision of creating world peace. And he thought he could do that starting in Park City by creating this utopia where, you know, philosophers, thinkers, artists, creatives could come in and ultimately figure out this, you know, human problem of world peace. You know, he had old friends who were on lockdown with their families elsewhere. He was lonely in Park City. As Kirsten said, he starts calling people and part of his offer to people was, hey, I'll double your salary from last year if you'll just come to Park City and live here. I'll pay for whatever project you want to do. So he was building an entourage that had a uh, financial interest in being close to him. Now we go a little further in and actually, uh, I guess it's via private plane. He's able to go to Alaska with his people, Puerto Rico. Uh, New London, Connecticut, which figures into the story. When did the travel start? How how was he able to do it? Right. So by this point, um, having not ever really been rehabilitated and having now found this new sort of high nitrous oxide, Tony has unfortunately, by the fall of 2020, suffered from a couple of different psychotic breaks. His family has unsuccessfully tried to intervene. The singer Jewel, a close friend of his, has also visited 
and and behind the scenes having realized how shocking the situation is and how much his health has deteriorated she begins trying to hatch this private plan to try and save him using tony's brother andy who is also in park city with him and we don't know this for sure but it seems like Tony may have in some respect been aware that others were trying to reach him. And so he began traveling. He just randomly went to Alaska. Um, the group decides that they're going to go to Puerto Rico to visit a friend there. Then they're traveling also back to New London, Connecticut, where another member of the entourage has a house. So they begin sort of flying all over the place. Nomads when nobody else could go outside. Incredible. Right. Well, they weren't <laughs> taking the pandemic super seriously, I have to say. Now, Catherine, you know, I know you cover Las Vegas and, and gambling and casinos. Tony had obviously made a lot of friends and contacts in Las Vegas. I guess he was uh, organizing buses, chartering buses and bringing whole groups of people up to Park City. That's right. Tony, while he was in Park City, was coming up with a lot of business ideas. And one of them was to basically own and run charter buses. Buses had always been a part of his life. It's a quirky little part of Tony that everyone knew. So when he launched his book, Delivering Happiness, in 2010, he did a big bus tour across the country that was just basically a weeks-long party. But so you could see this start to evolve. And he was uh, chartering buses to bring his friends in. And so that led to parties in the middle of the pandemic up in Park City when he wasn't flying around. That's right. There was um, <laughs> there was a period, I guess, in the summer of 2020 where the police, the Park City police, were being called repeatedly to Tony's mansion. Um, he had this beautiful, sprawling mansion that was known as the ranch. And uh, there kept being fires lit all the time um, at a time when there was all this fire danger in Utah. And each time the police would go out and say, you guys can't have these fires. You know, we we watched body cam footage. We read tons of police reports and these poor officers. I mean, they kept coming. The group kept lighting the fires. Um, finally, as Tony's entourage began to travel more and it became winter, so people weren't outside as much. Um, the parties died down somewhat. At one point, though, the Park City police chief himself uh, was so fed up with it that he took a fire official and right around sunrise kind of snuck onto the property to see for themselves and saw this, you know, smoldering of an old fire from overnight and, um, you know, just sort of demanded to have a meeting and really get them to assure him that this partying he said, we're not a Burning Man community here, is what he told them. <laughs> In case you were unclear about the message we're right. giving you. <laughs> no, no burning skis, <laughs> no burning anything. No, no burning. Uh, now, of course, this all you know speaks to everything being erratic, moving, and they could move very fast with his kind of money. So we're in the middle of this arc you're describing. Uh, Tony steps down as CEO of Zappos. That was a real shock. Um, and the way it was handled was just so bizarre because here was someone that had been 
at the helm of Zappos for 20 years had transformed the whole company, was associated so heavily with downtown Las Vegas, and there was basically almost no press. The Las Vegas paper broke the story. Amazon and Zappos said almost nothing, right? And there was no sort of like laudatory profiles, all of this. It was very quiet and very strange. Um, Behind the scenes, what we uncovered, what was going on is Amazon in the last, in the prior two years had stealthily began putting a lot more pressure on Tony and Zappos to perform. So Tony's whole thing was running all these workplace management experiments. That was what he loved to do. He had tried bringing something called holacracy to Zappos, where there really were no bosses. Um, Workers were empowered to create their own mini businesses. Amazon was sort of like, okay, that's nice, but where's the money, right? So they were putting more pressure on Tony. At the same time, he was suffering from all these mental health issues and using drugs. He basically had the sort of mini breakdown on the phone with an Amazon executive. They quickly realized something is wrong with Tony. They put him on this informal leave. None of this was known to the public. And they basically said, you need to get your act together um, and then come back around. And Tony just couldn't do it in the summer of 2020. It wasn't quite like Amazon forcing him out, but he was very mad about the way the whole thing transpired. Um, So mad, in fact, that then later in the fall, he purchased Zappos's building in downtown Las Vegas, kind of to stick it to Amazon. Like you, you got rid of me, but now I'm going to be the landlord of Zappos. (laughs) For $65 million, no less. Right. Let me look at my checkbook here. No, can't buy that building. Oh, that's too bad. You know, but it's like, yeah, put on your shoes and walk out kids. (laughs) I own the building now. I own, but you know, we're talking about distorted thinking. We're talking about, you know, feelings. We're talking. We're talking about someone who already had serious problems, and yet had a huge checkbook. And in the middle of this pandemic, I mean, all kinds of crazy things could go on anyway. But th- this is just a recipe for everything came together at once. That's right, and it's hard to. I mean. It- it's impo- it's important to look at this as Tony's health at this point, right? I mean, not to let anyone around him off the hook, but at this point in the fall of 2020, you're dealing with a very sick person, an addict. And it's extremely hard to help an addict, especially someone that has been so famous for this long and who has never liked confrontation, right? And even in his best years, didn't want to talk about anything serious. So he just wasn't getting the help that he needed. And he had the financial resources to essentially wall off the family and friends who cared about him most. I mean, he hired a security team in Park City that, you know, set up a gate. Visitors had to have like essentially a mugshot taken on a Polaroid camera when they checked in. There were drones, people in trees. I mean, he really was protecting that house and what he thought was protecting himself. Part of his entourage was a woman that um, had lived also with him in Park City. And so they were visiting this house on one of their um, many trips in the fall. And they didn't actually intend to be at that house in November 2020 as early as they were. But unfortunately, Tony's 
companion, his small terrier mix dog, Blizzy, um, got very sick in Puerto Rico and they had to race back to New London, Connecticut. Um, and then Blizzy unfortunately died. I'm speaking with Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer, the authors of Happy at Any Cost, the revolutionary vision and fatal quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we hear about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. The successful messenger is changing. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Wall Street Journal investigative journalists Kirsten Grind and Catherine Sayer. Their book is Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea. So Blizzy, Tony's beloved dog of many years, had just died. He was in a despondent state. He was very upset. Him and Rachel Brown, part of his entourage, begin to fight. Um, they're kind of picking at each other all day. The fight erupts and Rachel basically says, you need to get out of here. And to broker the peace, because they were planning on leaving for Hawaii the next morning, um, Tony ends up in this pool shed attached to the house on a freezing cold November night. The pool shed is literally a pool shed. It's just full of like a jumble of like beach chairs and floaties and all of this. And he lays down a blanket. He has his whippets. He has his candles. He has other stuff around him. And he's just in this pool shed. So while Tony is locked in this shed, you know, it's freezing outside. He has a propane heater going on inside that's not supposed to be used indoors. He's also getting his brother, Andy, and his 
other members of his entourage to come out and check on him, bring him pizza, bring him more whippets. Um, and right around a little after 3 a.m. Uh, is when you know smoke starts to come out and people rush out. They're trying to get him out, but the door is locked. So the scene is just frantic, right? Um, and this shed has this locking mechanism from the outside where you have to enter a code. Well, no one knows this code, right? So several of Tony's employees are trying to figure out the code. They they found Rachel. She's told them the number of the code. And so they're yelling back to the people who are trying to get in the shed, the the numbers of the code to let them in the shed. And later they couldn't figure out what happened because the code should have worked. But I think everyone was just frantic, punching in this code. They couldn't get it to work. The door was locked. And so that was just um, one part of just a really terrible scene. There's an awful 911 call we listened to with one member of the entourage where you could just hear the panic escalating on both sides as it becomes clear that Tony is very stuck in the shed and they can't get him out of there. And firefighters ultimately were able to bust through and get Tony out. But, you know, he was unconscious, taken to the hospital. He did survive on life support for another nine days, but ultimately his family made the decision um, to end life support and he died. In so many ways, it's it's rough to take a lesson from this. Sometimes we're a little distant from, you know, the, the person that died. And I'll, I'll never have the kind of money or I'll never have this or I'll never have that. And yet you two, of all people, as you said, you listened to the 911 call. You were looking at photos. You talked to hundreds of people. You talked to all kinds of people. What are the threads that you see that that might be lessons here? Actually, I think we think there's a big lesson in this story that we're hoping people will take away from. We really tried very hard to broaden this out in many aspects of the book. One of the lessons is that this issue we still have in this country talking about mental health, especially if you're a high performing person like Tony, that doesn't even just mean an entrepreneur. Maybe you're a YouTube influencer. Maybe you're, you know, just a business executive. Maybe you're just a normal person. We should be able to talk about these issues and not have it be, you know, quite so stigmatized. And I think another trend that's happening now among Tony's friends in the wake of his death is reevaluating this concept of happiness. And what do we mean when we talk about happiness? And are there other values that matter longer term to our, you know, life satisfaction, whether that's committing to something that sees you through pain and suffering in life? Um, so I think that that's been a, a moment of reflection for his friends looking back on the meaning of happiness. Now, Kirsten, you're here in San Francisco. Catherine, you're in Los Angeles or Las Vegas, as the case may be, covering gambling and casinos. How did you two get together and then come to write a book? Oh, well, one of the best things about working at the Wall Street Journal is there are so many amazing reporters here and you're often just thrown together on stories. Um, so my role here is really 
different in that I get parachuted into breaking stories that might need more in-depth coverage later. So I'm constantly switching subjects. And so Catherine and I, because of her expertise on Vegas, of course, um, got paired together pretty quickly, um, as well as another great reporter at the journal, Bob Haggerty. And we just went from there. We just were all digging into what happened to Tony and trying to unpeel the layers. When I was covering Las Vegas during the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation around diversifying the local economy away from gambling. And I had reached out to Tony's people to request an interview as a business leader in Vegas who's not in gambling, but I was told he wasn't available because he was on a digital detox. And um, I just never imagined what that really meant and how isolated he was at that time. I think about that a lot. It's really sad. So where do you guys go from here? This is really, really exciting. I think we're both going back to our normal jobs at some stage, for sure. I'm back on the sports betting and gambling beat and helping contribute to our Hollywood coverage as well now. Well, thank you both uh, for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you so much, Moira. Yeah, thank you. My guest today is Wall Street Journal investigative journalists Kirsten Grine and Catherine Sayer. Their book is Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO Tony Shea. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. With all the media we consume, neuroscience is telling us it's more about the messenger than it is about the message. Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks join me to talk about messengers, who we listen to, who we don't, and why. Stephen Joe, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having us, Maura. It's good to be here. Thank you, Moira. What a pleasure. No doubt you've heard that right here in the U.S. we have a media situation that has never been so polarized. One side listens to one set of media channels. Uh, the other listens to the other. What does this say about the media channels or sources? And what does it say about the listeners, readers, and viewers? Well, I think it's a super interesting question. And I think where Joe and I would come uh, in terms of answering that question is to think about it in terms of not what is being said, but more who is saying what is being said. And we've conducted now about two and a half years of, of research into the idea of why do certain people listen to certain messengers and why is it that other people uh, will almost dismissed what people are actually saying. And, and it, we come to the conclusion, Moira, that increasingly in this polarized society that we're living in, um, you know, what is being said seems to matter less than who is saying it. And as a result, in this increasingly information overloaded world that we live in, it's the messenger that has become the message. I, I mean, in my own research, I've been looking at um, the effects of political similarity on our perceptions of others' competence. And what we find is that if you know somebody shares the same political views as you, then you rate them as more competent on a completely unrelated task that has nothing to do with politics. <laughs> and as a result, you're more likely to listen to their advice on that topic and also seek information, seek advice on that topic from somebody who you think is competent merely because they possess the same political views to you. We always say... Uh... Media is about perception, not about truth. 
<laughs> a lot of perception you know, you, getting delivered. <laughs> you're exactly right. Um, you know, when we make inferences about who we should listen to and, and whom we should believe, often we're not listening to the content or the merits or the wisdom or even the truthfulness of what's being said. Instead, we are making judgments based on a, a perception of the individual or the or the platform that's actually communicating that. And we, so we are inferring. You're exactly right. Perception does seem to be important. And what's really interesting, almost incredible, is the speed that we often make these judgments about whom we should listen to. Often in a, a matter of milliseconds, we decide, yes, I'm going to listen to her and I'm going to dismiss him, even when those two messengers might be saying the exact same thing. Here on Technation, you know, we're only audio, uh, either in, in broadcast form or uh, in podcasts. What can you tell us or what can be told from a disembodied voice? I think there's a lot to be told from a voice alone. So, of course, you can't see hand gestures and facial expressions, but you get a, genu uh, a general sense of how confident a person is and how, mo you know, monotone their voice is, gives a clue as to how warm they are and how kind of uh, positive and uh, you, you you hear a lot of emotion in the voice too. So I think, despite the fact you not be able to read a person's face, which is largely how humans like to read non human uh, non verbal behaviors, we do actually have a wealth of information coming in through the pitch and uh, speed of which we speak as well. So I think there's plenty there to to still decode. There is. It's interesting uh, for us because so many times. We hear all this energy in a voice, and uh, uh, which is very exciting. And sometimes if the person is in my studio looking at me, they don't look excited at all. <laughs> Perhaps they've been trained to, you know, uh, essentially amend their voice to ensure that their message is heard. In fact, you know, one of the things we actually found, we, we talk about in the book, um, you know, we're both from the UK. You probably recognize that from our voices. Uh, and we found that um, both our previous and only female prime ministers that are, were elected to office in the United Kingdom, both took voice training, voice, voice coaching to essentially lower their pitch uh, and be able to communicate a message in, in a more dominant, competent-based way. Uh, so, so there's an example of how um, this is recognized, you know, often when we are only listening to a voice, uh, certain communicators will actually take steps to arrange for their voice to be optimal so that their message is heard. And even if you are in person, frequently you're hearing them through a microphone. And these microphones were all designed for men and their chest cavities and their deeper voices. So a portion of our voices as females are going to get cut out anyway. Hmm. And and I think the research kind of Steve was talking about kind of links to that in that they found that um, if if the the deeper the voice is, the more likely a politician is to get elected, and the more likely they are to receive applause after a talk. Um, so I think that's absolutely true that these kind of deeper voices that signal dominance and a bit more status are generally perceived to you know. Uh, give some positive kind of uh, response in their audience. I think it's also important to point out here that it's not always the the deeper 
monotone voice that will carry sway. You know, if an audience is anxious in some way or, or looking for some form of certainty or a direction to move in, that's when these dominant voices are most likely to carry sway. But, you know, in certain situations, like I, I can imagine, you know, when you go to see your doctor and he's about to, you know, perhaps deliver some bad news, you probably wouldn't want that deeper, you know, more authoritarian voice. You'd want a warmer, more, you know, a calmer voice to deliver that kind of news as well. So it really does matter the context in which a voice is being heard. Uh, that will also have a, an important determination on who will be listened to and, and the acceptability of what they say. There's also a common phrase known as motheries, which is when mothers speak to babies, they have that tone of voice, that kind of prosody in their voice and the way that they say things is very sing song, oh aren't you lovely? So this kind cute. of thing. You're so cute. Oh, wouldn't that be lovely? And uh, it and it's 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 there for a reason. Um, it's because babies are attuned to it and they find it warmer, as Steve was saying. Um, and that kind of voice as well is is also you know uh, is a, is is an effective route, I guess, as to influence and and to messenger effectiveness um, in other contexts, as Steve was saying. I'm reminded that uh, I was once given a definition that I, I, I really liked, that maturity in humans, maturity, uh, was having multiple behaviors. And so in a sense, if you are a messenger, your ability to develop multiple delivery styles, I think, is really important. I think you're exactly right about that. Um, and I think that maturity doesn't just extend to being able to, you know, garner multiple styles. Uh, it also extends to identifying the situations where one style is going to be more, uh, you know, uh, important or more likely to be listened to another as well. So, so it is a mature uh, uh, ability there. That, that life experience does count for a lot, I think, in not only understanding what type of messenger position to adopt, but also to identify uh, the right environment uh, that is, uh, you know, or, the, or, or the audience situation uh, that they find themselves in uh, to be able to identify what is the right uh, trait at that point as well. Well, let's get to selling your message. You refer back to the 1980s work of Edward Jones and Thaden Pittman, and they identified five strategies that a messenger could adopt. Competent, morally respectable, intimidating, likable, or pitiful. <laughs> so, we're, you have to remember that was the 1980s. That was 40 yeah. years ago. Yeah. And you've come up with a new analysis. Why was that really good then, and why did it? Why does it change now? Well, I think one of the reasons it's actually changed is that we have now 40 more years of psychological, social psychological and, and neuroscientific research. So we can update Jones and Pittman's work from the, the 1980s. You know, when, we're not dismissing that work. Uh, but what we do offer is a, a more contemporary way of viewing who an audience is likely to listen to and, 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 and who they're likely to ignore, regardless of what's being said. And so our approach is essentially twofold. You know, uh, there are hard messengers in society, and those hard messengers are able to 
arrange for their message to be accepted because they're seen by their audience or perceived by their audience to have some form of status. And in contrast, we have soft messengers. And the soft messengers are able to be heard because they don't necessarily have status over an audience, but what they do have is some connectedness with their audience. And so we categorize those messenger effects in terms of hard and soft. And within each of those categories of hard and soft, there are four traits uh, that most reliably inform an audience of whether or not they should listen to what's being said. The first hard trait is socioeconomic position. So that's how well-established, well-educated, well-connected, uh, wealthy somebody is, um, how much resources they have. And, uh, you know, people signal their status in many ways. Um, this has kind of been referred to as conspicuous consumption. Or, and, and then you have costly signaling theory, which is the idea that like peacocks who grow their tail in a way that's actually costly for them, um, humans will endeavor in, in into costly ventures in order to signal how much wealth they have to other people. And by doing so, show their status and uh, attract kindness from others, um, including from, in, you know, romantically. <laughs> um, and, and we, I've we seen talk about those kind peacocks of... out there. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sometimes it's it's very similar to peacocks, isn't it? <laughs> the second messenger trait is competence, uh, and competence is important because audiences want to have some sort of signal that the person or the group or the organization that they're about to listen to has some expertise or credibility that informs them uh, of what they're about to say. So, so experts are important when it comes to who we listen to because they have um, what we would call in the social sciences instrumental value. They have a learnable value that we can gain from. And so when we see a messenger to have some form of competence or even perceive that they have competence, that might be a good context where we're more inclined to listen to them. The third effect is dominance, and dominant messengers are combative rather than friendly types. They seek to triumph over other people. They want to be the winner. And people respond to this. In fact, from an astonishingly early age, uh, developmental research shows that uh, infants who are 10 months old will expect previously dominant messengers to be rewarded more and will also be surprised if they see them lose out to a previously submissive messenger. And the fourth and final hard messenger trait is attractiveness. Uh, oh, and what we're talking about here, Maura, is physical attractiveness. It turns out that those folks that are born genetically blessed are given a significant advantage in life. Uh, they, they earn more money. Economists have actually shown uh, they're more likely to get the job over uh, an average-looking uh, candidate who has the exact same qualifications, perhaps even slightly better qualifications. Um, and so when we see those cues of attractiveness, that can be a reliable indicator of whether or not we should listen to an individual or not. And what's really interesting about the attractiveness thing is that, you know, even trained scientists that should know better fall foul of this attractiveness bias. You know, medical doctors, it's been shown in studies, um, are more inclined to prescribe drugs that have been promoted by drug sales representatives who are particularly attractive. They deny 
that these attractive messengers have any sway over their prescribing, but the data and the scientific research tells a different story. Well, that's an easy one. All those young blonde girls who whose first three years on the job market was spent being a pharmaceutical rep. I can't imagine where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's get to the soft ones. What are the soft ones? Yeah, soft messages, in contrast to hard messages who seek to show status and get ahead of their audience, actually seek to cooperate and get along with other people. And so rather than uh, try and get respect and admiration for themselves, they actually bestow these qualities onto others. And they're very friendly and warm. Um, and essentially, they, they speak in ways that show their positivity, they show they care, they show they're friendly. Um, and actually, this has a, a big effect. So one study with doctors found that uh, people listening to the audio tapes from doctors could rate how dominant or warm they sounded. Um, and what the researchers then found was they, cor they correlated these ratings with the likelihood of the doctor being sued for malpractice and showed that doctors who had a more dominant sounding voice were more than twice as likely to be sued than those who were equally competent but spoke with a warmer tone of voice. The second soft messenger trait is what Joe and I call vulnerability. Uh, and uh, the vulnerable messenger essentially recognises that they, they certainly have no status over an audience. Um, they have no socioeconomic position. They don't necessarily have uh, you know, competence to be able to get their message heard. And so what they do instead is they, they essentially wear their heart on their sleeve. They communicate some vulnerability about themselves. And what that can often do is, you know, create some connection with an audience. Um, there's one study that we really, really liked that we've, we've written about in, in the book. Uh, and it concerns a situation that we've all been uh, uh, in, we're all familiar with, that situation where perhaps in an airport or in a train station, you know, we're running late and there's a long line to get to the ticket desk or to the check-in counter. And... You know, you want to kind of ask the person in front if they're allowed, you know, would it be okay if I cut in the line? And what the researchers did was they essentially wanted to understand how much money do we have to give to someone in a queue or a line in order for them to allow us to get in front of the line. And as you would expect, the more money that was offered, the more likely the person in front of them will allow that person to cut in line. But what was really interesting was they never took the money. What? <laughs> they never yeah. took the money? They never took the money. It's like the money was a sign of vulnerability. It's almost like people saying, well, if you're prepared to give me 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks to cut in front of the line, you really must be in a desperate situation. And when people, messengers that we see in a desperate situation communicate that fact, sometimes... We connect with them. We, we become more inclined to respond to that need or to that message. And so vulnerability is the second of our soft traits. The third of the soft traits is trustworthiness. And, you know, generally we say trust is crucial to any human relationship because without trust, you can't have prosperous, prosperous economic exchanges or uh, romantic relationships or productive workplace collaborations. 
Um, and, and broadly, there are two forms of trust. So we have competence-based trust, which is our confidence in a messenger's capabilities. Um, and we also have um, integrity-based trust, which is our belief that a messenger will stick to good, virtuous, moral norms, even if a temptation to violate them arises. Um, and so what we find that's kind of interesting with trustworthiness is that messengers can build up a bank of credits in a way um, that actually allow them to then change or, or uh, potentially even commit wrongdoing in the future. If you've seen that somebody is trustworthy in the past, and in particular, if they have taken your side in kind of group conflicts and group positions in the past, then then once they start moving away from that position, they're given quite a lot of leeway. They essentially have built up credit in the bank and we trust them not to betray us. And the final soft messenger trait is charisma. And charisma is really interesting from a scientific perspective because it was only 2016 where the scientific community... Uh, really agreed upon what a definition of charisma actually is. Uh, and it, it's largely now accepted that charisma is an ability for a communicator, a messenger, to instill some form of devotion in their audience. And they largely do that by communicating a grand vision, uh, some unifying direction that the whole of that audience can buy into. Uh, they also have, more or less, something that psychologists call surgency. Uh, and, and, and surgency is essentially that ability to communicate in a, an upbeat, positive way. And often that positive, upbeat voice is accompanied by uh, overt hand movements. There's some really interesting research that's been done with TED presenters. Uh, you can take two TED presenters who are largely, you know, concerned with communicating the same message or the same subject matter. Let's say there's two presenters that talk about leadership. And what the research finds is that the, the presenter that uses more hand gestures, typically about twice as many hand gestures as their less charismatic presenters, are, are often rated as a much better talk, uh, will receive more views, even though Essentially, the content of their message is exactly the same. Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks are the authors of Messengers, Who We Listen To, Who We Don't, and Why, is published by Public Affairs. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.